Good to see all of you. Thanks for being here. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online. Thanks for tuning in as we worship together today. If you've got a Bible, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 24th chapter. We're going to take the next step in our verse-by-verse journey through Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus. Uh, we're in a unique part of Matthew's Gospel in that it's the final week of Jesus' life. This all begins in Matthew chapter 21 with a great or the, excuse me, rather the triumphal entry where he enters Jerusalem for the final time. And in the first few days, he's busy with a variety of things. But for the sake of time, we're going to fast forward to the very end of Matthew chapter 23. Jesus is in the temple. He's been teaching. He's had a tense, tense confrontation with the religious leaders that basically led to him calling them out as nothing more than a bunch of religious frauds. And then as Jesus is leaving the temple, this is what he says. This is Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house, and this is a reference to the temple, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what we need to understand this morning is that the disciples had a really hard time wrapping their minds around the fact that Jesus said that the temple and all of its building, as spectacular as they were, would one day be desolate. That comes through in the very first verse of Matthew 24. Because Matthew writes and says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. The disciples are, look, Jesus, at the temple, look at the buildings, look how magnificent and spectacular they are. How in the world could they ever be left desolate? Jesus surprises them, though, with the next verse, Matthew 24, 2, when he says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And I told you two weeks ago that Jesus' words were literally fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans invaded the city of Jerusalem and completely destroyed the city, including the temple. Everything Jesus said came true. And now the disciples' heads are spinning. They don't know what to think. And so that leads to Matthew 24 and verse 3 where Matthew writes, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that leads to what we call the Olivet Discourse in the rest of Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus talks about his second coming. It's called the Olivet Discourse because, as we read, he's seated on the Mount of Olives. It's Jesus' second longest recorded sermon in the Gospels, the longest answer he ever gave to a question. I introduced this to you two weeks ago when we looked at the first 14 verses. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at least in a sense at the entire rest of the chapter, although I'm not going to be able to talk about it verse by verse in detail. I'm not even going to ask that we read the entire chapter. That's something I'm going to ask you to do on your own. Instead, I'm going to give you what might best be described as an overview that I hope ends on a high note. But before we do that, I do want to read a portion. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 24, let's go ahead and stand together for the reading of the Scripture. We do this virtually every weekend. We didn't do it last weekend. It's an unusual circumstance. But every weekend, for the most part, we do this. We make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service. And because we 
have such respect for God's Word, we stand together when we read it. I'm going to read Matthew 24, beginning in verse 27 down through verse 35. You follow along. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, Jesus says, will never, everyone say never, never pass away. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and on the hearing of his word. One of the great difficulties, friends, in teaching this passage of Scripture comes from the different views and interpretations people embrace related to end times prophecy. And the reason why I say that this morning is because what you choose to believe about end times prophecy impacts tremendously the way you understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 24. Let me try to explain what I mean. I told you that in the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24, we talked about this two weeks ago, that Jesus gives us six signs that will precede his coming. Those six signs were spiritual deception, international conflict, natural disasters, fierce persecution. I had to look at the screen there for a minute. lost my place. Worldwide apostasy and worldwide evangelism. Now, five of those six things are just awful. But the final sign that worldwide evangelism is very positive. And what we talked about two weeks ago is that the magnificent grace of God trumps everything. I say that because even in the midst of the greatest level of rebellion and sin and darkness and persecution and suffering that the world has ever known, because of the grace of God, people will continue to be saved. Now, let's think about those six signs once again. In general, most Christians will agree that these signs, all of them, all six of them, have begun to be fulfilled, at least partially, in this present age. If you were here two weeks ago and I talked about each one of these individually, you'll know that I said at the conclusion of each one of them that you could make the case that this was being fulfilled at least on some level. Who knows the degree of that level, but at least on some level in our modern-day world. But, and here's where things get complicated, there's a lot of disagreement about the, what the rest of Matthew chapter 24 means about the degree of those signs and the fulfillment and what Matthew 24 continues to teach us. And so, at the risk of oversimplifying an incredibly complex issue, let me tell you why there's a lot of disagreement, or there can be a lot of disagreement. There are three basic views that people embrace related to end times prophecy. There's the premillennial view, the postmillennial view, 
and the ah millennial view. And they may, those may be words that you've never even heard of before. They may be things that you're very well versed in. There's absolutely no way I can give you a thorough explanation of those three views. And so I'm gonna encourage you to do two things. First of all, I'm gonna encourage you to study this on your own because that's something not only you can do, but that's something you should do. You should have some level of understanding of what the Bible says about end times. And second, I would encourage you to get a hold of a copy of a sermon series I preached back in 2011 that was called Next, Understanding Tomorrow Today, because I talked about all of these things and much more in that sermon series. But here is a ridiculously oversimplified explanation of these three views, the premillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the amillennial view. And you just hang in there with me for just a few minutes, okay? People who hold to a premillennial view related to end times prophecy basically believe that the world we live in today is going to continue to get worse and worse. And they believe that this will all culminate in what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, something described right here in Matthew chapter 24 and in the book of Revelation chapter 11 through chapter 18. Premillennialists believe that the climax of the Great Tribulation will be the second coming of Jesus Christ, followed by something called the Millennium, which is a 1,000-year period of time where Jesus literally sets up his kingdom on the earth and he rules and reigns in peace on the earth for 1,000 years. Premillennialists believe in the rapture, although they disagree in some ways about when the rapture will, be, will take place. Most premillennialists believe that the rapture will happen right before the great tribulation, meaning that the church, that true believers, will not go through the great tribulation. The word rapture is not found in our New Testaments. The word rapture is the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo, which is found in the New Testament. The Greek word harpazo, which literally means to snatch away. For premillennialists, the main teaching about the rapture in the New Testament is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 54, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 is a verse that's often cited in reference to the rapture. Paul writes and says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, harpazo, rapture, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. It's important to note that premillennialists believe that the rapture and the second coming of Christ are two separate events. But if you don't remember anything else I said about being a premillennialist today, I want you to remember this. A premillennialist believes that the world we live in today is going to get worse and worse. The second view is the postmillennial view. And people who hold to a postmillennial view related to end times prophecy believe that the world we live in today is going to get better and better. They believe this is going to happen primarily through the efforts of the church, and eventually the entire world is going to be evangelized to the point where we're going to live in a kind of a Christian utopia here in this world. And when that happens, they believe that Christ will return. Postmillennialists, for the most part, do not believe in the rapture. They believe the next event on God's prophetic timetable is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Postmillennialists believe that the current age that we are living in today is the millennium, which is not necessarily a 1,000-year period of time. And postmillennialists believe, for the most part, that the Great Tribulation was a past event that happened in the first century 
encompassing the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and the persecution Christians faced under Nero. But if you don't remember anything else I said about post-millennialists, remember this. Post-millennialists believe that the world we live in today is going to get better and better. And I'm going to pause and I'm going to say once again, I know this is a ridiculously oversimplified explanation of these views, so don't come up and correct me afterwards. I'll be hiding from you anyway. The third view is the ah-millennial view. And the first thing I would say is the A or the ah in ah-millennial means no. And so ah-millennial basically means no millennium. But to be fair, ah-millennialists don't really believe there's no millennium. They just don't believe it's something to be taken literally. They don't believe there's going to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. They say that Jesus is ruling right now in the hearts of individual believers, and so his rule is taking place right now. They believe that Satan's power was completely broken at the cross and the resurrection. So in that sense, Satan has already been bound, and Christ is ruling in the world today. They believe in the rapture, but they believe the rapture is a part of the second coming. And so for all millennialists, the next event on God's prophetic timetable is the second coming of Christ. All millennialists believe that the events described in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, and Revelation chapters 8, 11 through 18 are events that have either already happened or are events that should be viewed figuratively and symbolically, but not literally. And in contrast to premillennialists who believe the world is going to get worse and worse and postmillennialists who believe the world is going to get better and better, all millennialists believe the world is pretty much going to remain the same. Now, I really don't have time, honestly, apart from adding, listen to me, several more weeks to this sermon series that's already been going on since November of 2016 <laughs> to give you a further explanation of that. Around the office, around the office here with our staff, we have kind of a running joke. When we're impatient about something happening, somebody will say, I hope it happens at least before you finish the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you this, and it's a repeat of what I said earlier. Whatever view you choose related to end times prophecy significantly impacts the way you understand what the meaning of Matthew 24 is. And that's why I'm sharing with you this information today. And I'm going to tell you, and this won't be a surprise to those of you who've been here for a while because I've shared this before, that on a personal level, I embrace the premillennial view when it comes to end times prophecy. I believe the world we live in today is going to continue to get worse and worse. I'm not a pessimistic person. I don't have a negative outlook on life, but I believe that the world we live in today is just going to get worse and worse. And as a result, I believe in the rapture. I believe the rapture will come before the tribulation and the church, true believers, will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air. We won't go through that. And so I believe that the next event on God's prophetic timetable will be the rapture of the church. In fact, I'll tell you what I believe God's prophetic timetable is. Same thing I shared in 2011 with the next series. That's not it. That's, that's not the slide I'm looking for. There we go. 
There's the church age. I think that's the age that we're living in now. Some people call it the age of grace. A brief explanation would be it is a period of time when God temporarily sets aside his dealing with the nation of Israel and offers salvation to all men everywhere. Somebody say hallelujah to that. That wasn't very enthusiastic. Thank you. <laughs> the next event on God's prophetic timetable would be the rapture followed by the great tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ, followed by the millennium where Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years in peace on the earth, followed by the great white throne judgment, which is the horrific event where people who are not believers or not Christians will be judged. If you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about the white the great white throne judgment, you won't be there because your sin will already have been paid for and already been forgiven. But if you stand before the white, great white throne judgment, you have no hope. You have no hope for all eternity, which is what follows next when we have a new heaven and a new earth. And while I don't have time to go into detail of, uh, in regard to why I choose the premillennial view, I will tell you that the foundation of my choice is the literal interpretation of Scripture. In fact, here's the fundamental belief that I've always had and I've shared with you for years related to understanding the Scripture. When the normal sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. And so, when I read Matthew chapter 24, I believe a great deal of what Jesus is saying is significant related to a coming time of tribulation that can be characterized by three things. It will be characterized by evil men. The dominant evil man will be the Antichrist. By the judgment of God, unlike anything we've ever seen before, but also by the grace of God. Now, I'm going to stop talking about that, and I'm going to tell you, again, like I have in the past, it's okay with me if you don't believe the same way I do about end times prophecy. That is okay with me. It will never be, what you believe about end times prophecy will never be a test of fellowship with me. You know what I mean by that? I, I, I never view what you believe about end times prophecy as being a test of whether or not you and I can have fellowship together. We're brothers in Christ. You're my sister in Christ, even if you don't share my same end times view with, with regard to prophecy. I've, grow, I've grown up in a church like Mount Pleasant my entire life. A church, many of you know this, and, but many of you don't because we come from all different backgrounds. Mount Pleasant is what's called an independent Christian church. We're not a denomination church. We're not connected to any denomination, but we're a brotherhood of about 6,000 to 6,500 churches. It's hard to keep track because so many churches close and open every year, but we're a, a part of a brotherhood of about 6,000 churches roughly uh, that are called independent Christian churches. And we're connected because we have the same basic doctrinal beliefs and because together we share Bible, we, we support Bible college and missionaries and parachurch ministries and things like that. And I've been a part of this kind of church my entire life since the time I was a baby in the nursery. And growing up in the church, I've always heard this, this slogan, this phrase, although it's not limited just to the independent Christian church. I'm gonna put it up on the screen so you can see it. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things love. And that's so important. I want you to read that with me. I want to hear your voices. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things love. Are there things that we absolutely have to agree on with regard to the Christian faith? Yes. For example, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It's not by works, but by grace through faith. There's no other option for you when it comes to what you believe about salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. And it's essential that we have unity on that belief. Are there things related to what the Bible teaches in the Christian life that we can have some diversity on and it's okay? Yes, it's okay. But at all times, in all things, we're commanded to love each other. And I hang on to that. I believe in that strongly. 
One last thing I want to tell you before I move on is I do believe that having some sense of an understanding related to end times, in particular the second coming of Jesus, is important for every Christian. That's why I said earlier that you need to study this on your own. You can do this. There's a joke that goes around that's been around for a long time related to the things we just talked about, this premillennial, postmillennial, and all-millennial view. Some people come along and say, well, I'm none of those things. I'm a pan-millennial. And what I mean by that is I think it'll all just pan out in the end. <laughs> and that's kind of funny, and there's some truth to that because how many of you know that in the end, God's going to do whatever God's going to do, whether we understand it or not? We can sit in Bible study after Bible study trying to figure this out, and some people do. Some people are obsessed with end times prophecy, but in the end, because he's a sovereign God, he's going to do what he's going to do, whether we understand it or whether it fits our timetable or not. But the second coming of Jesus Christ deserves our attention, not just our attention, it deserves our great attention, friends, because the Bible gives us so much information about the second coming and because the Bible gives us so much instruction about how we're supposed to live in this world today in light of the second coming, our knowledge of the second coming. Teaching about the second coming of Jesus is significant in the Scriptures. In his book, What in the World is Going On?, Dr. David Jeremiah writes, references to the second coming outnumber references to the first by a factor of eight to one. Scholars count 1,845 biblical references to the second coming, listen to this, in 17 Old Testament books and in seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament. Jesus himself referred to his return 21 different times. But the truth is, with all of that, and I don't even have time to talk or even reference the many things the Bible teaches us about how we're supposed to live in light of the second coming. The truth is, with all of that, many of us as Christians don't give much thought to the second coming primarily because we are so deeply invested in this world even though the Bible says over and over again, this world is not our home. And when the Bible talks about our lives in the world, it talks about us as being aliens and strangers and sojourners. It's not our home. This world is not our home. That's why John wrote in 1 John, do not love the world or anything in the world. This world is not our home. But the bottom line is, with all that we might not know about end times prophecy and the second coming of Christ, the one thing that we do know for sure is that one day Christ will return. One day he's coming back. And ultimately, when Christ returns, when Jesus comes back to this world, he'll reclaim this world because this world that we live in today is not the world that he created, not in the beginning. Today, it's a world that's broken and devastated and fallen because of sin, and the reality of that impacts your life and my life every day, and it impacts the lives of people that we know and people that we love, and sometimes that impact is felt in devastating, heart-wrenching, heartbreaking ways. But it's not going to be that way forever. Again, in his book, What in the World is Going On?, Dr. David Jeremiah writes and says, the book of Revelation is divided into three sections. At the beginning of the book, we are introduced to the world ruined by man because sin came into the world through man. As we move to the latter half of the tribulation period, we witness the world ruled by Satan. But as we come to Christ's return at the end of the tribulation period, we see a world reclaimed by Christ. 
And that, friends, should be the day that we all long for because that will be the day of no more. That will be the day of no more pain and no more suffering and no more heartbreak and no more death and dying and no more separation from loved ones who have been lost and no more moments where we long to the point of groaning deeply on the inside for something better because the better will have come. And while I'm sure that every one of us, if we were to be honest this morning, everyone here and everyone watching me online would say that there are things and there are experiences in this world that we would like to have. There are things we would like to do in this world. There are experiences we would like to have. This world is not our home. And we should long, and I use that word deliberately, we should long deeply in our hearts for the day of Jesus' return because he's worthy of that kind of love and he's worthy of that kind of devotion and he's worthy of that desire, this desire to see him face to face. On August the 8th, 1914, 29 men set sail in a three-masted wooden ship from Plymouth, England to Antarctica on a quest to become the first adventurers to cross the Antarctic continent on foot. Sir Ernest Shackleton had recruited these men through an advertisement that read like this, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Shackleton was an honest man and he was a strong leader whose men began to refer to him simply as the boss. He worked as hard as any crew member and he built unity on, the board, on board of the ship that was aptly named Endurance that they traveled on. In January 1915, the ship became entrapped in an ice pack and ultimately sank, leaving the men to set up camp on what was called an ice floe. An ice floe was a flat, free-floating slice of sea ice. But Shackleton kept the men busy by day and entertained by night. They played ice soccer, they had nightly song fests, and they held sled dog competitions. But it was in the ice flow camp that Shackleton proved his greatness as a leader. He willingly sacrificed his right to a warmer fur-lined sleeping bag so that one of his men might have it. And he personally served hot milk to the men in their tents each and every morning. But in April of 1916, their thinning ice flow threatened to break apart and they were forced to seek refuge on nearby Elephant Island. And Shackleton, knowing that a rescue from an island as desolate as that was unlikely, took five others and left to cross 800 miles of the open Antarctic Sea in a 22-and-a-half-foot lifeboat with more... of a hope than a promise to return. But finally, on August the 30th, 1916, after an arduous 105-day trip and three earlier attempts, Shackleton returned and rescued his stranded crew, becoming their hero. But when you look behind the story, you have to say that perhaps the real hero of the story was a man named Frank Wilde, who was the second in command. He was left in charge of the camp in Shackleton's absence, and so he maintained the routine that the boss had established. He assigned daily duties, served meals, held sing-alongs, planned athletic competitions, and in generally kept up all the men's sagging morale. Because the camp was in constant danger of being buried 
in snow and becoming completely invisible, he kept the men shoveling throughout the day, shoveling away the snowdrifts. The firing of a gun had become their prearranged signal that the rescue ship was near. But because there were so many glaciers floating in the area and there was so much breaking and cracking among the ice on the glaciers that mimicked the sound of a gunshot, they just began to give up on that and distrust that sound altogether. But Wilde never, ever gave up hope in the return of the boss. In fact, he kept the last tin of kerosene and a supply of dry combustibles ready to ignite and use as a locator signal when that day came. Only four days of rations remained in camp when Shackleton finally arrived in a Chilean icebreaker. He personally made several trips through the icy water in a small lifeboat to ferry the men to safety. Sometime after that, Shackleton learned how the men were so prepared for the rescue when he came. He learned that he'd only been gone for two weeks when Wilde began the routine of getting up every morning and rolling up his sleeping bag like it was the last day they were going to be there and telling the men to do the same thing and shouting out to the men, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. And one day the fog and the mist opened and revealed the ship they'd been waiting and longing for for over four months. And on that day they were prepared. And so the most pressing question for all of us is not related to whether we have a premillennial view or a postmillennial view or an amillennial view that allows us to understand Jesus' words in Matthew 24. It's whether or not we're prepared to meet Jesus face to face. We don't only need to be prepared. We need to long for that day because he's worthy of that longing.